God Creates Dinosaurs. We've got the Sad Boys Book Club here. God Kills Dinosaurs. It's a Unix system. I know this. God Creates Man. Dusty and Daniel were so preoccupied with whether or not they could. Man Creates Podcasts. I'm simply saying that because life uh, finds a way. They didn't stop to think of they should. God Kills Man. So, uh, nice weather we've been having, huh? No, actually. It's been hell. <laughs> it's been, we've been, it's been in the hundreds, like, every day this week. And, the, like, the past week, too. We don't all have the, uh, the, the, the privilege of beautiful, uh, Midwestern summers, brother. Uh, well, yeah, I've just been chilling in my... 80s to 90s <laughs> tropic summer honestly at this point i would take 80s to 90s <laughs> and i i'm not that guy but uh i that that would be i would take that over like like this is the weather that it was in like that little hot house that they were growing the baby dinosaurs that this is this is exactly what it's like it's like the temperature is like 100 the humidity is like 85 it's it, it is terrible. It is it is the worst. Yes. Take a trip back 65 million years to a prehistoric time where everything was worse and everything sucked. Just visit Texas. For real, though. It, you come back here, sometimes it feels like you're going 65 million years back, back into the past. Welcome to the Sad Boys Book Club. My name is Dusty. And I'm Daniel. And neither of us are government-sponsored... And neither of us are government-sponsored meteorologists. Yeah. Uh, we're, our, our training is not in uh, meteorology, but rather um, dinosaur cloning and literary analysis. Yes. Jurassic Park. So, how, how, are, you, how are you liking uh, the second part of Jurassic Park so far? Well... You know, it's uh, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of like plot happening. Things, characters are learning things, and we're learning things about the characters. And we had like a small amount of action happen. It's just, you know, just really, really terrible stuff. Yeah, um, things happening. Uh... I hate when things happen in books. It makes me um, viscerally angry. Yeah. Uh, uh, the I had to I actually had to buy another copy of uh, Jurassic Park um, because I was so angry after one character died um, that something had actually happened. Stakes had actually occurred in my book. I was so angry. I um, I, I just tore it in half, and it was actually a hardback version that I just I just like Hulk Hogan that thing in half. I don't know if Hulk Hogan's one for tearing things in half, brother. Uh, you might be thinking of, like, Lou Ferrigno with the Hulk. Uh, yeah, probably. Because Hulk Hogan <laughs> is known for his pro-American attitude and his leg drops. I'm very much enjoying the book. Um, I think, like, on a page-to-page basis, this is the most fun book uh, that we've read, at least from my perspective. 
Um, like, it's just... I don't know. Say what you will about Michael Crichton as, like, a... You know, I, I don't know that this is, like, like the most highbrow literature that we've done or will do. But it's just... He knows how to tell a really good and engaging story about dinosaurs. Yeah, if we're talking like page to page, moment to moment kind of things, I think for me, I still have to give that to Leviathan Wakes. But I mean, everybody who's who's been following us consistently at this point should know that that book hit different for me. So, but I mean, as I've said last time, Jurassic Park is one of my favorite books. So, I mean, yeah, I I just I have so much fun reading it. Definitely. So, let's see. What, where were we last time when we left off? Um, the last thing that we covered was... Sorry, I forgot the, the, the girl's name again for a second. Uh, was Tim and Lex arriving on the island. Okay. Yeah, we, we couldn't remember her name last time, too, I think. Yeah. Um, to, to just do like a, a, a broad overview real quick, just to kind of throw down the, the bullet points of, of what, what we covered for this week. Um, this week was their tour of the facility, their tour of the island, and everything starting to go wrong. Yeah. I, I'd say that's definitely the case. If you're watching the movie... Uh, it's, it's basically take from when the kids come in, in the movie, and the last thing that we, we're really covering in, in the book relative to the movie is Dennis Nedry and the aftermath of the T-Rex encounter. There you go. There's your frame of reference if you've seen the movie. Alright, so, uh, the kids have arrived, and we got Tim and Lex, and, um... They we kind of we kind of uh, see their characters pretty quickly. Uh, so Tim, he's like the 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 uh, dino nerd um, who really really looks up to Doctor Grant, and his sister Lex is a basically her defining trait through like most of this part of the book so far is being uh, an archetypical little sister character and being a Mets fan. Like, every third sentence is, is like, hey, do you want to play catch or pickle or whatever, you know, whatever. The... I actually don't know what pickle is, so I assume it's some sort of baseball-oriented thing. Yeah, either that or anyway, I'm hungry. Oh, she says I'm hungry. Like, I said, I said uh, she wants to play catch every third sentence. Every other sentence is I'm hungry. Yeah, which I think she's like eight, to be fair, so... Um, but yeah, that, that's, but you know, that's kind of what I mean. It's like, she's just like, um, you know, that, again, Michael Crichton, you know, very good writer overall, but you know, sometimes he kind of leans hard into the, into certain tropes. But anyway, so, so, uh, Tim and Lex, they, they land, um, and they are introduced, uh, they're introduced by Ed Regis, who is the, uh, sort of like the, uh, public relations uh, he, yeah i was i was trying to find the right word but yeah public relations uh guy for jurassic park and he's the guy that basically is going to be taking uh dr grant dr sadler and the and the uh, and uh i was gonna say the other experts but the only other one is um dr malcolm 
Uh, but anyway, he's he's the one that's going to take them on the guided tour around Jurassic Park. And so, uh, they, they, they as they set off, you know, there's a little bit of a back and forth between uh, Dr. Grant and Tim, where, you know, Tim is able to recite some, like, moderately arcane dinosaur facts, which which uh, Dr. Grant um, finds impressive. And so they, they kind of have, like, this burgeoning... Maybe not quite father-son, but we're getting some, like, uh, Uncle Magic vibes, you know? Yeah, which is uh, uh, a difference between the, the book and the movie, because in the movie, Grant hates kids, and it's only through the course of surviving in the park that he actually comes to appreciate Tim and Lex, whereas in the book, it even says Grant loves kids because of how easily they, they become fascinated to and cling to dinosaurs. He... It's not kind of like a kindred spirit. It's just, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where it's like, it's so easy for kids to be into the same things that I'm into, specifically with dinosaurs, because dinosaurs are so wondrous to kids that I can't help but like kids because of that reason. Hold on. I need to talk about, while we're talking about that, Dr. Grant had this really bizarre take. Like, along when he was, when he was talking about that part of things, he was like, I think kids like dinosaurs because dinosaurs remind them of their parents. That was weird, yes. I don't understand that That was personally. a certified insane quote from Dr. Grant. It's just like, what are you talking about? I, the, the, I, if, you're, if your parent reminds you of like a T-Rex, you need therapy. You, and I'm not a therapy guy, but like, you need therapy. <laughs> If if your if your initial reaction is like, my parent is like a uh, uh, a, a a terrible lizard, um, I you you need to do some some introspection, is in order, um, and also uh, maybe something to be done about your parent. <laughs> that is that is uh, that is not good if they are parenting you and uh, they're acting like a T Rex. Yeah. Stay out of the oven. I can, I can only speak for myself in saying when I was a kid and I thought dinosaurs were neat, um, a lot of it was because of just how big and cool and scary they looked, and also because of, ironically enough, Jurassic Park. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, for me, it was 100% the cool factor. Um, I didn't find them scary, per se, because I was like, well, they're, they've been dead for millions of years, so I didn't figure that was anything to worry about. I was much more worried about things like like quicksand, for example. And, uh, but anyway, so, so, uh, Dr. Grant, he's, you know, he's kind of palling around with Tim a little bit. Um, and, and so, and, and Lex also has like a semi, I don't want to say relationship with Ed Regis, but like he just, he indulges her and her desire to do like catch more than the other uh, adults which are more focused on their mission well he does the so, first time the second time it's Gennaro that plays catch with her oh really yeah oh that's true well never mind <laughs> Lex is 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 kind of the outsider then I suppose I think it's more but so anyway, probably the adults just being like oh, I gotta indulge this little girl so she'll shut up that is definitely the vibe you get um as the as this section of the book goes on but anyway they kind of go they're going through the the park and uh, they, they get to the, the control room where, you know, Regis is kind of giving them the rundown. And he's like, basically, the park runs itself. And, you know, we're, we have only a skeleton crew here, which, again, very, kind of, very timely um, 
uh, aspect of the book there is like this this idea idea of like a of like a lean staff and um, trying to like automate everything in ter- versus like having trying to like staff up uh, for things. It's 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 very uh, very prescient of this moment, I would say. So they're in the control room. They meet uh, a couple of the key figures um, that work for the company. Uh, they meet uh, uh, John Arnold, who is kind of like, uh, I describe him as an engineer. Uh, he basically is kind of like the boss of like the, the computer system stuff. And and I guess probably some engineering stuff, but that, that doesn't hasn't really come to play yet so far in the book. But he, he basically, he seems like he's just in charge of computer stuff. And the, the park warden... Uh, uh, Robert Muldoon, who is like this really weird um, hunting guy, who is like I don't know, he's he's he was like this this uh, big game hunter turned like conservationist and like a uh, wildlife consultant. He's like he's kind of a go ahead. He's like if Van Pelt from Jumanji wasn't evil. Uh yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, he he's like if if Clayton was like less evil <laughs> from Tarzan. Yeah, generally I, the same that that's that that archetype of character. Muldoon is sitting um, there pulling out pulling a grant pointing at a picture going like Velociraptor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, <laughs> The next next up is uh, Doctor Henry Wu, who is like the 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 lead geneticist for the Jurassic Park. Um, uh, the that their whole project is basically under his his uh, leadership. And as they go through, they they meet him, and he kind of walks them through their their DNA process, which seems right ish. I don't. It's 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 the, the classical. You know, I don't know if that's right, but I don't know enough about DNA to dispute that. Um, yeah, like burning trash it, and turning it into stars. Exactly. It, it's that's that's basically that's basically the sense you'll get through through that portion of the book. But it sounds right enough that I, I unless you you're like really into this stuff, you're probably not going to get hung up on it. Anyway, just to give you like a little overview of like what they're doing. Essentially, what they do is they take like these fossils, they grind them up, which Sounds like an extreme waste, but apparently they can somehow extract a certain amount of DNA. Um, Is it about twenty percent? Yeah, and then the rest they they get from. Uh, and I thought this was kind of ingenious, uh, if if implausible. But they they uh, you might recall from the previous section we talked about how uh, Hammond has been stockpiling amber and was now uh, the world's like he had the biggest supply in the world. Well, they, this this is kind of paid off here when uh, Wu explains that what they're doing is they're going through the DNA and they're, like, finding parasitic insects, like, like a mosquito or whatever, and they're just extracting the preserved blood that is inside of the, the, uh, the insect. And then they kind of put the DNA into a, into a uh, gene sequencer and... According to this bit, they that they, they talk about how they use like um, they use the computer system to compare it against like other like closely related strands to kind of like 
fill in the gaps. But uh, we might we might find that there's maybe another thing that they're doing uh, to fill in gaps later. Um, I guess there's there's a little bit about uh, and then there's a little bit about Nedry and he's he's kind of there. He's basically described as being a slob, and that like like that uh, Michael Crichton has like you can tell which characters he likes. Um, Nedry is like one of is maybe the character he likes least. <laughs> he is constantly deriding him as like a slob and and a and a just a just a lout of the highest order generally. Um, so anyway, after that they go they go into the fertilization room, and uh, they're they're looking at how the they're they're putting the DNA in. Um, what what were they putting? What were the eggs? They were they were some kind of lizard. Was it like monitor? No, it was a crocodile, right? Um, no, they were just plastic eggs. Huh? They were injecting the embryos into plastic eggs. For, that's um, right. That's right. They had like a like a like a fake plastic egg, and wasn't there like a like a fake womb type thing? It, it's it's basically the the room the fertilization room is like a giant incubator. Yeah. I guess that's probably what it is. Anyway, so they 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 use they they create the dinosaurs in there using the the eggs, the fake eggs, and then um, they go once they they move the eggs into the the hatchery room where, as we mentioned before, they have like really it's really hot and extremely humid in there, and so they basically they the, the and they have people like sifting through the eggs and they have. You know, however many survive. I think it was like less than ten percent. Something, something pretty, pretty low. Like they I, have a very low. Oh, go ahead. I want to say they said it was four percent. That sounds right. I didn't want to like shoot too low, but it was it was basically very few of the dinosaurs actually survived the hatching process. Um. Which anyway, I mean, it makes so they, sense. I mean, it it does make sense, especially because it's like not a real egg. The conditions are only being approximated, not like actually replicated. You know, that, so it, I mean, it, it definitely makes sense. Um, yeah. Then they, they they move on to the nursery, where they see this technician with a, a baby Velociraptor, who sounds uh actually astonishingly cute. I, I must say, this is a very cute section. Yeah, um, if I could have a, a pet infant velociraptor like six weeks old or however old they said it was and it stay forever with that temperament and that physicality that'd be cool like no teeth uh i imagine it still probably has its 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 claws but they're probably more akin to i would assume a cat maybe and it's it's i think they said that it was about the size it was like a foot long or something like that about the size of a cat That'd be that'd be yeah, rad. Like a foot long, a f- it was like a foot long, a foot and a half tall, something like that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. You, that. I mean, you you could pull like a crisp rat, and then uh, and then like train it, you know, and then become friends. I don't know. Anyway, so they 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 basically the 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 dinosaur he's being cute and everybody's ooing and eyeing over him, and the kid and the dinosaur takes a liking to Tim and like jumps on to Tim and just kind of wants to hang out with him uh generally being more sociable than we would associate uh with with uh any kind of uh reptile or lizard or 
Even most avians, I would say. Um, and then we have Grant at probably his, like, probably his worst moment in the entire book. Just, like, basically takes the raptor from from Tim and is just, like, looking it over and holding it upside down. It's screaming and crying. And he's like, I, I must investigate you. He, he's basically treating it like he's Cole Phelps. And they're like, I, Grant, stop it. <laughs> the, I was like, I felt like that, too. I was like dude what are you doing i i'd forgotten about that part but i was just like i was like don't what are you doing don't hurt the the, the thing it's yeah just, and he's like i'm not hurting it he's like i'm not hurting it but like they, they, they i feel like if it was a true actual velociraptor from i i don't remember if they say what what period the velociraptors from i don't remember if it's jurassic or cretaceous or whatever I, I don't know i don't know that stuff very well um but I, I imagine if it was one actually like from its time that was created naturally he could probably do that and it would be fine but the thing they point out as to why they made such a big deal about him doing that was uh stress uh and like external forces could actually lead to it's basically the dinosaur equivalent of sids it feels like that is kind of that. That is a good point. Uh, I didn't really mention this there, but that that's basically something that is constantly happening as they're going through this part of the book. They're like, it's like, oh, but, but please don't touch anything. Please don't touch. Please, because because they, they're, you know, I, we kind of briefly touched on it, but like, they have a very very low um, survival rate. Um, so anyway, after this, they've uh, they kind of get back to the control room, and uh, Malcolm is kind of he you you can kind of see at this part of the book this is like when when malcolm's kind of getting in his bag um he kind of goes from being kind of a weird and i don't know like the, the him, him his interaction with uh, dr sadler was uh, it really kind of threw me off to be honest <laughs> i was i was not vibing with him uh but like here he starts to like he kind of starts to to do things that make him if not necessarily likable, more like he he's he becomes his his expertise is becoming relevant. Uh, one thing I find funny about Malcolm is every single time they show them something, his response is always, "And yes, this proves exactly why this is this is why I'm right, and this is why this is going to fail." And they're like, "How so?" And he's like, "Because it exists." And it's like every single time they they show them the computer system. Oh, that's why it's going to fail. They show him the the the, the, the incubation computer. process and all that. Oh, that's why it's going to fail. And it's like it's not that he's wrong. It's just funny that every single thing he's just like, "Haha, further proof to my cause." Basically, he's like, "Hmm, ah, computers." Hmm. He's 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 like he's like you can very you can very easily just kind of feel the um, the the Jeff Goldblum like reading his character it's like this the role of Malcolm was perfectly cast in the film. Yeah, he's just like hmm. I see you only have uh, Grape Fanta in your in your vending machine. Yes, yes. This is proof enough that this is going to fail. Ooh, what's that? Uh, but, uh, no, no Granny Smith apples in your in your fruit bowl. Ooh, yes. Oh, that's that's bad. Oh, uh, chaos theory shows that your your park is gonna die now. Uh, hmm, ah, you, you know, uh, the, you, you see, uh, the, the Granny Smith apple did not exist in the Cretaceous era. And so, so according to chaos theory, that means that the dinosaurs are going to start losing their minds. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, the, they, they're going to the control room, and uh, Malcolm uh, is talking to Wu, 
and he's he's kind of like kind of pressing you for details because Wu's uh, previous thing that he's walking through, while like broadly impressive, like has like some important things that have been omitted, uh, and and he kind of gets they kind of drill him into him a little bit here, and they they say uh, Malcolm specifically asks how many species they've made so far, and Wu. And this is an important thing here. Wu thinks it's 15. Um, which is like, what? What do you mean think? It's just, it's, that's, that's, uh, that's kind of like one of the first hints, at least on this, on this specific um, tour, that there's, there's, uh, there's something kind of going on. Mm, yes, uh, you seem to be very knowledgeable for your craft and seem to be doing a great job here and hit some uh, some marvels of discoveries that uh, science has never seen before. Wow, fantastic. Great job, great job. Uh, this is disastrous to the cause. <laughs> uh, they, I, so they, they basically... Um, he also asks... Um, he, he asks about uh, the, the compies and... Like that, because there was... That, that's... Uh, that's the reason he's basically out here is because if you remember from the previous uh, episode, uh, the the what they believe to be an escaped compi was was uh, recovered on the shore in Costa Rica. Um, so, so they kind of talk a little bit about them and they're 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 uh, part of the the eco the ecology of uh, Jurassic Park, and um, he basically is like. So basically, there's a lot of these dinosaurs here. Um, how how are you able to keep track of everything? How you know is it possible that they couldn't escape? And uh, the Doctor Wu is is very adamant, like no, they they can't because they are incapable. We've specifically engineered them to be incapable of producing uh, some sort of uh, enzyme that basically Lysine, that, that they need. Yeah, that that sounds right. They they need to they basically have to get lysine as like a supplement that they are receiving on the island. Otherwise, uh, they they will go into a coma within twelve hours after leaving the island. Um, additionally, they they have thrown in this. I don't know if they talked about it here. They probably talked about it in the section before, and I just didn't mention it. But another thing that he mentions is. That all of the dinosaurs are supposed to be female. That is, that was their their decision when uh, when breeding and uh, you know cloning these dinosaurs is to, to have an an all female population. Anyway, so they are uh, as as they're as they're leaving um, or they're beginning they're getting ready to leave. There's there's a what is it called? Like, a, like the there's there's like a, a supply ship that's coming in, and uh, they're 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 kind of they're, the control room is trying to talk to them, and kind of while while that happens, uh, they that that's kind of just kind of put a pin in that in your thoughts because that that's going to become more relevant later. Just kind of like a, a little bit of a foreshadowing moment, and uh, they then they talked a little bit more to Wu about like what their the dinosaur um, development process is and they're talking about how they they um basically settler and grant start to have a little bit of questions like 
how how are you measuring success? How are you making the decisions to like for their the development of the dinosaurs, that kind of thing? And um, they also talk to them about uh, adult raptors, and um, they do have them in the park, but they're like not in a in like they're not ready to be shown yet. They're they're in a in a temporary enclosure. Anyway, so the, the, the tour with that, they're kind of wrapping up the tour. Um, this is when Lex and Regis play catch. And then uh, uh, Grant, uh, Dr. Malcolm, Dr. Sattler, and Tim go to see the raptors. Yeah. So, yeah, Grant wants to see the actual raptors because they're not in the park proper. They're being held still because they, they're, they're having issues getting them acclimated into the, pro- the park proper because, you know velociraptors are kind of dangerous shocker i know so yeah they're told yeah you can go see them you got to go around the to the back of the facility you can see their containment places there yada yada so malcolm wants to go with and tim wants to go with so the three of them go around they're looking and they're like oh where are the raptors at but then grant sees one and it's it's just poking its head through just barely not moving staring at them through the the trees I, i love this it's just it slowly takes its arm and moves the brush away, just kind of like it's peeking out. Like that's that's like a, that's some sinister imagery right there. Like great job with uh, with Crichton building that tension there with uh, just them being essentially stalked by a rapper and gr- <laughs> Eminem in the bushes staring them down. Uh, them being stalked by a raptor. And Grant even makes a note saying, oh, wow, they're hunting us. And then suddenly they get jumped from both sides by other raptors uh, being part of this ambush because that first one was actually just drawing their attention. But, you know, fences are a thing. So they jump into the fences, get shocked, whatever. And Grant's just like, holy shit, wow. Uh, (laughs) That was crazy. That's some crazy intelligence on those raptors. And Malcolm's questioning him about that, being like, oh, you know, hey, um, what was that about? Um... And he, he talks about, Malcolm talks about how um, it's it's unusual for a raptor like that, uh, or not necessarily a raptor specifically, but normally in uh, with predators, with meat-eating predators, uh, humans aren't a part of their, their, their diet. They're not a part of their hunting uh, patterns until it is introduced to them in some manner. And then after that, that's when they can actually, that's when they actually learn to hunt humans. Um, they don't do it naturally. And he said that he assumes that raptors are the same, especially since there were no humans around when the raptors existed. So he's just like, hmm, I wonder what happened to cause these raptors to have a, a taste for humans. Huh? That's uh, disconcerting. And if you remember uh, one of the prologues of the book, uh, yeah, that uh, you can kind of see where that came from. So... Yeah, that that's their in, their first encounter. Yes, their first encounter with the raptors, um, which is cool. We get to see the raptors, and uh, Grant gets to marvel at them because you know he's he's obsessed with the raptors because you know he was digging the one out in Montana or whatever at the, at the start of the book, and yeah, fun little bit with that, and um, yeah, so also putting some more seeds of uh, things about to go bad, and you know we're getting all of these little puzzle pieces that we're putting together uh, as to see why the park fails piece by piece so they go back and um it's at this point i think that they actually start the tour proper 
for the the park itself. Is that right? Uh, I I think that's right. Do they? Is there? Is the part with uh doc, with John Hammond and Doctor Wu before or after that? Um, you mean when they're in his bungalow? Yeah. Or, or when they're talking about the uh, him's version four point four. That I think the version four point four. I I think that's like somewhere. Um, I think that's somewhere uh, like in between. Okay, well you you can go ahead. Never mind. Then I you, you can go ahead and start start yeah. up on the tour. Um, oh, something I should mention though before before the tour, while they were in the control room, uh, they learned how they keep track of all the dinosaurs. Uh, through motion sensors and cameras that will count the dinosaurs. And they have a system where it says, it has this chart and it's like, um, it'll say it, it expects to find two Tyrannosauruses. It found two Tyrannosauruses. It expects to find eight Velociraptors. It finds eight Velociraptors. And does that through all, for all 15. And it comes out to 238 dinosaurs. And they're like, yeah, this is how we know, this is how we know that, um, uh, this is how we know for certain that none have gotten off the island, because every five minutes, it's updated to show us that there are 238 dinosaurs on the island, and, uh, if any, if, if that ever changes, we immediately get alerted to it, so we will, we will know immediately if a dinosaur gets off the island. Obviously, we know at this point, that's not, there's, there's a flaw in that somewhere, because the, the copy... Or compies, actually, there are multiple compies in San Jose or along the coast. So, uh, that's that's important. That, that that happens. But now they're they're going on the tour itself. They get into their, their little uh, land rovers, and they're going through on their tours. Uh, Tim wants to sit with Grant because, oh, I have your book. I know you. You're awesome. But the adults need to, to talk about adult things, so you get to ride with Ed Regis and your sister in the back car. And it goes, if you've seen the movie, it's it's it does it's very similar to how it kind of goes a little bit, but we get a lot more. Um, you know, if you look to your left, you'll see this dinosaur. And um, there's a moment Ed Regis is talking about because uh, they there's like an automated tour guide that's giving little tidbits of knowledge of each thing, each um, part they pass, what dinosaur lives there, little details about that dinosaur in particular. And it's I forgot the name of the person that it's like Richard Killy or something like that. I, I could be way off on the name, but I feel like that's kind of close. Um, I don't know if that's a real person. It's probably some famous person, and like they, uh, they, they got him to do the voice for the the automated tour guide. And Ed Regis says one of my favorite lines from the movie, but it's only associated with Ed Regis in the book. After he says that they got this dude to voice it, spared no expense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I made I made a note of that in my book. Or in my in my notes when I was reading the book. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Hammond spared a lot of expenses, but uh, not in that not in that situation, I guess. And uh, yeah, so they're they're seeing some of the dinosaurs. They're not seeing some of the others because you know they're shy or whatever. Uh, at one point, as they're going through one of the uh, one of the enclosures, and they see like one of the dinosaurs, uh, Tim sees something quickly go across the field. And he's like, whoa, that's a Velociraptor. I saw it. There's a raptor. And 
Grant's like, are you sure? Because they can communicate via the cars. The cars have, like, walkie-talkies and radios, so they can they can all hear each other talking between the cars. And uh, Grant's like, are you sure it was a raptor? He's like, absolutely. It was about, you know, he said it was about three feet tall. It looked exactly like the one that I held. So, you know, if anyone's going to know what a raptor looks like at this point, it's probably going to be Tim because he got to hold a baby. And he's like, yeah, it definitely was bigger than the one that I held, but it was smaller than the one that we saw in the gate in, uh, outside. Also, they saw raptors outside, so they definitely are. They know what to look for with raptors. And of course, back in the control room, they're like, "Oh, well, it's probably just one of the one of the tree climbing dinosaurs." I forgot what they're called, like Othio somethings or whatever. Because uh, uh, those those are hard to keep track. It's probably just one of those uh, stupid kid. <laughs> so yeah, it was definitely a raptor, by the way. Just saying. Uh, they're continuing on the tour. They get to the T Rex uh, part of it, and uh, they're looking for the T Rex. Regis is like, ah, they're normally nocturnal. Or no, 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 the raptors are nocturnal, sorry. It's like, the the, the Rex, T-Rex is actually kind of shy. So, you know, they, they pulled, it's kind of similar with the movie with the goat, but instead of it being a crane, it, it's something that comes out of the ground and it's tethered to a, to a post. And we actually do see the T-Rex come out. And it comes out, it kills it. And Grant notes that its behavior is similar to that of like a bird snapping its, its head around, looking for any potential predators that are going to come for its its kill because that's the thing about predators that we've discovered in recent times is that it's it's more so that because of how hard it is to kill uh, prey and have a meal as soon as predators kill them they're suddenly even more alert than they were before because they don't want their their fresh kill stolen by other predators that are also hungry so the rap the, the rex is doing that and then it takes a bite and then eventually just kind of takes its meal and goes so they, they, they saw the T-Rex, woo. Um, and then, uh, so, you know, tour, tour keeps going. Uh, and then we get the, to the Stegosauruses, and this is where the, the local, like the on-island veterinarian, uh, I think his name's Dr. Harding, he's working on a Stegosaurus who he has anesthetized because it's sick. And Ellie and uh, Grant are like, well, we got to go take a look at this. Ellie especially because, you know, she's a paleobotanist and she knows. This is kind of a, lo a lot more where her expertise is compared to someone like Grant. So they and this this is the film equivalent scene to um, when they see the, it, I, I, the, the sick dinosaur and you know, Grant lays on its stomach as it breathes. And they see the big old, you know, that's a big pile of shit. You know, that scene. This is that equivalent. Um so they're looking they're trying to figure out ellie's helping the doctor trying to figure out what uh what might be causing the stego to be sick because they're they're only getting sick in intervals of every six weeks and it can't be this poisonous berry that is absolutely poisonous and causes the symptoms that the stego is having having because the stegos aren't eating those plants they know better to to, to not eat them but it's still having those symptoms and they find these these smooth rocks um what do they call them gallstones yeah, something like that. And it, it's basically, or, or, or yeah, it, it's basically rocks that uh, some birds will put in their gizzard that'll help them uh, break up their their food. And they find a bunch of piles for it's it's the stegosaurus doing that because the stegosaurus also had gizzards that they put the stones in to help with digestion and breaking down the food and whatnot. But she finds that. That is how they're getting sick is because some of the berries from that plant are getting picked up along with the rocks, and that's what's causing it. So, woo, problem solved. Uh, but also, 
Grant finds a piece of a dinosaur egg and he brings it back and he's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. It's a, it's a dinosaur egg. And he's like, you know, uh, Harding's like that. There's no way that can't be a dinosaur egg. And Grant's like, look at it. I just, I, I've, I've, I've found fragments of these eggs. It's my job to find these things. I have found them in my time. I know an egg when I see one. This is a Velociraptor egg. And of course, back in the control room, John Hammond and Arnold and we were just like, ah, nah, no, it's just a bird egg. It has to be a bird egg. There's no way. But now uh, Grant and Gennaro and Malcolm and Sadler and all of them are now convinced that, well, no, these dinosaurs are breeding. So, uh-oh. So then... Actually, you know, I thought about it. Is there, did we miss the portion where they're talking about uh, when they, they find the flaw in the software um, in the control room? That kind of that also kind of prefigured this idea. That that that's immediately following. That's that's him. Basically. Okay. That that's Malcolm, like in response to the egg. Okay. Yeah. So so yeah yeah now they um they found the egg. It's like oh there has to be uh, ways that they're breeding. And Grant's like we have to find their breeding sites. He, I think he says there's at least eight. Uh oh that that actually that, that's in a minute. That's I'll get to that in a second. Uh so Grant says there has to be breeding sites. And Malcolm, who's now talking to them in the control center. It's like, hey, do me a favor. You know that 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 thing you're running that shows 238 dinosaurs? To, uh, have it run for 239. So Arnold does it, and lo and behold, it pulls up 239. There's now one more copy on the list than there was before. And he's like, that's strange. So then he's just like, hey, uh, Malcolm's like, hey, run it again, but this time check for 300 dinosaurs. And much to their horror in the control room, it keeps going and going and going and going until there's that is an error. That's such a great. Yeah, that that was a, a great a great horror, horror moment. Yeah, the way that it's book. the way that it's formatted in the novel, it's it's really good. You see, like the like the the printout, the computer printout of like the species, the the dinosaur identified, the expected found, and the version numbers of the dinosaurs, and it's it's actually really really cool. Yeah, it's a really really cool um, way that it's it's told in the book. And eventually it errors out, like, 300 not found. And John Hammond's like, ha-ha, I told you. But then it's like, 292 found. <laughs> and there's eight, <laughs> there's eight dinosaurs that have variances in terms of their expected total and their actual total. And the one that, like, I looked at it and I just, I, I you know, obviously I forgot about this kind of detail since it's been, like, six or seven years for me since I listened to the audiobook. You look, and especially since, you know, I'm, I'm listening to the audiobook. I don't, I don't even think he... Uh, the in the audiobook they read out the details in the graph. I think they just said they just read the text only and skipped the graphs completely. But you look at the graph, and I just kind of leaned back and was like, "Holy shit!" Because it's Velociraptors expected count eight, total count thirty-seven. It's like, ooh, yeah, that, shit. That that is that was a very that, that I I've never. That, that is a very interesting piece of writing to, to feel like the, that feeling of like of like uh, fear so to say like that horror feeling and you're but you're just looking at like a table a data table yeah you know that's just that's super cool yeah it's, it's something that um, it, it's something that, that obviously can't be done as well in the movie and, and the movie doesn't really focus on the Raptors as much not until the climax but just like seeing that and thinking oh geez there are 29 raptors in the park not the eight that are that are caged up that Muldoon has essentially separated there are 29 in the park proper 
running around doing things. And even Grant's just like, uh, one thing we don't know for certain either is, um, cause like one of the, one of their, one of their diets for raptors is eating the eggs of other, of other dinosaurs. So he's like, you know, we can't tell for certain, uh, how many, how accurate these numbers really are because you know, for all we know, there could be a bunch of, you know, eaten dino. We, we can't tell for certain how many nests there truly are. He thinks there's about eight nests and that's based off of how many variances there are from the expected and the um the total amount and i think it's there are five species that don't match the raptors are the highest no i actually i think the compies are the highest i think there's i think compies have like there's like 30 plus extra compies uh but that's just you know they're they're kind of small fries but uh he see he comes but out also so- kind of goes to 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 uh give the theory of like give credence to the theory of the the compies have escaped yeah they, they had no idea that they had they were their number was off by like a third yeah and the thing that grant says that he's like we can't be certain if uh some have escaped but we can know that it's possible that if they did escape you didn't pick them up in the system uh and the only way to really kind of know is to find the breeding sites and essentially get a note of how many eggs there are in each of these breeding sites so that we can extrapolate to to get an idea if that 292 actually is accurate and it won't it wouldn't be perfect because there's no way to tell you know with dinosaurs that have been killed or eaten or whatever or eggs that have been eaten it's it's not going to be an exact thing but at the very least they could try and see how close that 292 is to the truth so yeah needless to say that that causes a lot of issues yeah uh, and then the next thing they kind of they talk about it's it's a little less interesting and a little more arcane but they they talk about how there's like a graph of like the distribution of like the height uh the of the height of the 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 compies and it gives a uh what they refer to as a gaussian distribution um and that's basically uh it's it that they're like see it's perfectly normal that's what it's supposed to be but uh malcolm is like hmm yes you fool don't you know that because of your methods that uh it should not be that way that uh that is the graph of a normal population not an artificial population and uh that's that was another thing that was uh so basically that Muldoon starts to free is starting to freak out um rightfully so yes Muldoon is one of the few people on the side of I'm gonna just say on the side of uh Jurassic Park that really and truly kind of has an appreciation for what's going on here yeah and, uh, we didn't state it but uh Muldoon was of the opinion uh he he mentions it earlier when we're kind of getting his general introduction that he thinks the raptor should be destroyed completely he doesn't think the raptor should be in the park at all he thinks they're too dangerous they're they're essentially a major major liability and he thinks it's better to kill them off completely and not even fuck around with that as opposed to just letting them exist yeah and honestly I mean, I'm I'm against this project just as like, just in general. But it's even if I was like <laughs> on the on the on you know, if, even if I was an in-gen person, I would have to agree with that assertion. I, I feel like you can make a decent argument with the technology being there to have a park for the herbivores. Like it's outside of accidents that you know, like like being stepped on or something which that's something that would probably be more that person's fault than the dinosaur's fault with herbivores 
you don't have any of these dangers. Everything that happens in all of the Jurassic Park movies, in the book, it doesn't matter. It all stems from the, the, the carnivores. They're the problem. They're the danger. Get rid of the T-Rexes. Get rid of the Dilophosauruses. Get rid of the Velociraptors. Get rid of the Procompsignathids. Just keep the herbivores. You got a park. It's good. Like, anything that goes wrong, ah, no, oh, no, the herbivores are mingling. Ooh, like, nothing bad's going to happen extremely. It's only because of the dangerous carnivores that things go to shit. So, just get rid of them. I guarantee you, Joey from New York, who's spending his dad's trust fund money to fly down to an island 100 miles off the coast of Costa Rica to see some dinosaurs, yeah, he might be disappointed that there won't be a T-Rex there, but I'm sure once he sees the other dinosaurs, he ain't gonna really care so much. He's gonna be like, wow, mom, look, a Triceratops, this is the best vacation ever. Like, you know? Yeah. I just just can't get over the idea. I, I just find it to be just a bad idea. I'm not really... Like super, I don't know. I'm, I wouldn't regard myself as a particularly spiritual person or, or anything, but it's just there's something that seems innately wrong about resurrecting these species. It just it just feels it's playing God. I, yeah, it's just, it's hard for me to put my finger on it exactly, but it's just like this just feels bad. Like I I would I would definitely not be in support of this. Yeah, and um, it's something they even talk about, too, with just how much maintenance goes into the upkeep for the dinosaurs themselves. It's so, it's, while I'm reading it, I'm thinking, man, this is remarkably unsustainable. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that is, I, as, as uh, Malcolm continues to somewhat gleefully point out, like, at every turn, like, there is so many, they, they thought they thought of everything, and then immediately, with, like, mild scrutiny everything starts falling apart yeah which um to to backtrack just a smidge because this is important to point out when they're talking to the control center it's like hammond arnold and Wu were there and they're talking about the uh the eggs and how all of this happened um grant asks if uh what what kind of dna they used to fill in the gaps uh when there were any in the dino dna and Wu's like, oh, you know, we use birds and reptiles and, and whatnot. And Grant's like, did you use any amphibians? And he's like, I, I'd have to go and check. And so Grant's like, if you used some frog DNA, you'll get your answer as to why they're able to breed. Which, if anyone's seen the movie, you know, it's because they're the, the frogs are able to essentially, they can change their gender at will in order to, to, to adapt to breeding troubles. So nature's pretty rad like that. And that's that's why Grant is asking specifically about amphibian or frog DNA. Yeah, I, that that is that is an interesting um, little little uh, thing there. I I I actually didn't know that there were uh, there were uh, species like that until this, but it's that's an interesting little thing that they include there. And also, just come on, woo! Like, how could this have slipped by someone who? Whoever was, you know, Wu ultimately bears responsibility, but, like, whoever, I, whoever's idea it was to start, like, slipping frog DNA into the, into the mix, uh, what, what, let's go, I, I'd like to know the thought process there. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I feel like there are plenty of issues, mostly down to the genetic level, 
as to why this park cannot succeed long term. The short term reason, and the reason why this book exists in the way that it does, is 100% because of Dennis Nedry. None of the major issues that the characters face in the book itself would have happened if not for him. Nedry is the reason why this book goes the way it goes. But, like I said, it's really more so the issues that are just because of this project in the first place or as to why that it was destined to fail. It's just Nedry was that little push that made it happen sooner than it would have naturally. He was the kerosene in a in a match factory. Yeah. So also last last little bit here before we move on, just just one little twist of the knife as it were. Uh, and also another like what what were you what is wrong with you people? What how how are you so lackadaisical? There was initially a very bad uh, rat problem on the island uh, when they initially uh, landed and started, you know, putting putting things together. That rat problem mysteriously vanished after a few months. After a few months and, of the dinosaurs being incorporated. Yeah, and uh, it's it's like nobody real nobody thought to. Uh, Nobody, nobody, that didn't trigger any kind of alarms that nobody thought to, to follow up anything about that. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of Jurassic Park is hubris. Yeah, and Wu the whole time is like, like, just be like, but no, they're, they're females, they, they can't breed, and it's just over and over. Like, he's, he's just completely, like, so stuck, stuck on that, despite the fact that things are, like, rapidly like showing themselves to not be what he thought they were mm -hmm. anyway, i'm sorry you can continue um i don't remember if this actually happened before i think this happened during the tour before they found the the the, uh, the eggs in this in the in the stego area but there is a bit where um Wu does visit hammond and it's basically uh hammond's like ha ha yes this is so great and Wu's like well you know we can make it better the, the issue is that these dinosaurs are funny enough too realistic and he has what he calls version because they, they they have every time they do a change to the dna of the dinosaur it's they update the version number similar to like you know a software or a video game when there's a new patch they'll update the version number of the software um you know version 1.0 version 1.1 version 1.2 version 2.0 etc they do the same thing with the dinosaurs every time they update the genetics and Wu is offering up the newest one he has which is called version 4.4 .4. And what he's suggesting to do with that is to essentially make the dinosaurs less realistic, make them slower, make them less aggressive, make them more domesticated, make it to where they're more like zoo creatures as opposed to actual extinct dangerous creatures. And Hammond ain't having any of that. He's like, nah, 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 people want the real thing. And Wu's like, well, that's the thing is, you know, as, as far as the public is concerned, we control what the real thing is. We are trying to do something for entertainment. We are able to essentially set the narrative since we are the first people in history to ever see dinosaurs. Since we have created them, we can, we can just do whatever we want with this. And he's trying to do something that admittedly will be a lot safer, will be better, and will actually fix a lot of issues with the genetics of the dinosaurs. Even if there was breeding, I think breeding would also create a major issue that they would, that would probably lead to the park 
failing regardless, but this would fix a lot of the problems because it would essentially, like he's like he suggests, domesticate the dinosaurs. And Hammond, who's you know, Hammond is the epitome of, of arrogance, of hubris of man in this novel, and he's like, nah. He basically says, this is how nature made them. This is how nature intends it to be. This is how I intend it to be. This is how it's going to be. And part of that arrogance is him being like, animals in a zoo, once they learn, once they adapt to their environment, they become compliant and essentially exist in the zoo. The dinosaurs will do the same, which is, (laughs) that's a hell of an assumption to say the least, especially given (laughs) what's going on with the raptors that that Hammond is aware of with the raptor attacks and why the raptors aren't being integrated into the park yet. You know, there, there's So Wu has a solution that will fix a lot of things, and Hammond waves it off because it's not his vision. And, of course, he's only thinking about the money. He, you know, he makes a comment about how this is going to be the perfect park for kids all over the world. Well, eh, rich kids, I mean, actually. So Hammond's such a dick. So anyways, back to back to the, the main cast here on the tour. So Ellie decides that she wants to stay with Harding and get, she'll get a ride back with him because she wants to keep seeing what he's seeing, doing what he's doing. And Gennaro decides that he wants to stay with them as well. Uh, so the rest of the group, yeah, at this point, uh, uh, Lex has been complaining consistently about being hungry and everyone's starting to get hungry too. So they're like, all right, it's time to head back to the, to the, to the resort. So, um... They're they're gonna get back in the jeeps and head back to the head back tours over for now. Let's get some dinner and we'll we'll talk about this. We'll figure out what what our game plan is later. And then we get to where Nedry's plan kind of starts falling into place for what he's doing. Because if you remember, he met with Dodgson from uh, was it Biosyn? Was that the company's yeah. name? Biosyn. Yeah. So now he's he's actually starting to kind of get his plan going. Um, earlier, Muldoon. Uh, left to go. Um, he he he's get. This is when we get our Muldoon backstory earlier on, and he basically he has this key that allows him access to this locker that has all of the weapons, all of the 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 lethal weapons on uh on the island. So he opens it up and he pulls his favorite Mel Gibson off the shelf and he puts it in the jeep. And it's a it's a rocket launcher and some missiles. Um, that's a lethal weapon joke, by the way. Um. <laughs> And uh, he leaves it in the Jeep. Just, you know, he ha- he's, he's getting his contingency plans ready to go. And uh, he comes back up. And as he was leaving, uh, Nedry made an offhand comment. And uh, he asked Muldoon to bring him back a Coke. But uh, you can also, I just want to throw out here, you know, we're talking about how what great casting um, uh, for, we had for Ian Malcolm. Wayne Knight as Nedry is perfect because you could just you could just hear in his voice the, can you bring me back a coke? You know, like just the, that like like little bit of like the skis, the skis like of the the mocking tone. It's like it's it just it's just great. Yeah, Wayne Knight really killed it as uh, as Dennis Nedry. That was that was really good and casting. Uh, we the... talked about this a little bit before uh, we recorded uh, today. Definitely one of the things about the movie that was better than the book is just like Wayne Knight's fundamental Wayne Knightiness. Like his his performance uh, is one of the things that really elevate movie Nedry over uh, the book. 
Yeah, because like like Book Nedry is not really goofy. He's just this fat slob computer tech guy that's in it, in it for himself and for the money. Which I mean, Nedry in the film is he doesn't come across as a slob as much. He's just you know someone who's overweight, and uh, he's definitely in it for himself for the money. But Wayne Knight did add a lot of, and this this could have just been Spielberg in general or and, and Crichton with the script. But at least with the performance that he gave, he added a lot of goofiness to Nedry that I feel like really kind of made the character a little more fleshed out than what we got in the book. So that is like like the bit where when they're when he's meeting with with uh, with Dodgson and he has the can of whipped cream and uh, he sprays it into his hand and he has the little giggle and he wipes it on the on the top of his pie or whatever like that. It's or or you know one of my favorite lines from the movie when Dodgson sits down. Which I, I, I once again I don't I, I said this last time I don't I don't know if I've just been hearing it wrong my whole life and it is Dodgson in the movie or if they changed his name to Dodson in the movie because I always heard Dodson I don't know if if that's just my hearing being bad on that or if they did change it from Dodgson to Dodson or if it actually is pronounced Dodson and I'm saying Dodgson wrong maybe the G is silent I don't know doesn't matter I'm just gonna say Dodson for the movie right now just for sake of just my convenience. But that in that same scene, like I said, one of my favorite lines in the movie is when he's like, I, he's, he's like, uh, you be careful, I shouldn't be seen here. And Nedry's just like, Dodson, we've got Dodson over here. <laughs> and like, <laughs> nobody gives a shit because n- nobody knows who he is. And it, basically, dude's acting like he's James Bond. And he's, m- meanwhile, he's sitting in the middle of just like, who gives a fuck where? And nobody gives a shit. <laughs> like. Yeah, and then you know, then it's the seat. Nobody cares. It's just, is is just this great moment. Yeah. So there's like these little character moments that the movie has that the actors, I feel like, were really able to like really chew on and make the performance better than what would you would only get from text on a page. So yeah, credit where it's due. Yeah, uh, Wayne Knight did a great job as as uh, Dennis Nedry. Um, yeah, absolutely. So Nedry, you know, he Muldoon goes, he asks for a Coke, Muldoon comes back, doesn't even care to give him the time of day because he's this fat slob. Bleh. And so Nedry's just like, he's doing his thing, it's about that time, uh, and he's like, alright, I guess I'll go get that Coke. And he activates his plan, which is to shut down the security system around the perimeter of the park. And one of the things that they mentioned earlier, talking about the... Um, the bugs in the system that he's there to fix is that when that security system around the park goes down, all the security card doors stop functioning and you can essentially open them all willy-nilly. You can you have access to the entire park regardless of your clearance level, whatever. And so Nedry did that on purpose. He put, as he called it, a lot of like back doors and fail-safes in the security system that he designed so he could do things like that just in case. He, as he calls it, a, a Kilroy is here moment. Uh... So he, he, everybody is either up in the control room or out having their dinner, and he timed this very specifically so that he could walk right into the lab and get the samples for the, the 15 uh, dinosaurs, put it in the spray can, crank it, get that N2 going, and as he puts it, get into the Jeep, three minutes to the dock, drop off the can, three minutes back, he'll be back before anybody knows what's going on, he'll fix the system... And everything will be hunky-dory. He'll fix everything he needs to on the weekend. Mission successful. I'm now a million and a half richer. Yeah, um, I, I just... I just One thing that shocked me was... I don't know. I guess I just expected the embryos to be bigger. That they... they like the, the fact that they all would fit in that uh, one spray can was... 
kind of surprising to me. I thought it was just it was just to get like, excuse me, one embryo. Yeah, it's two of each. Which and yeah, he's so he's he's somehow shoving thirty embryos into a can. Yeah, and as I understand it, I I think how it works in the in the book is he unscrews the bottom and it's just you know mostly empty space and he's just he's essentially just dropping them into the can. That's how I understood it as I was reading it. It's not like in the movie where it's this, he unscrews the bottom and there's this container that has, it's perfectly sized so that he can fit each of the, the vials into their little spots in the holes on the can. It's, it, it doesn't, the movie does kind of like, kind of, it, it seems like it kind of peps that up a little bit, makes it a little more fancy than it is. Because now, I've never thought about this until just now as I was saying this. It's really convenient that Dodgson gives him a can that when he opens it up is perfectly designed to fit those vials in it in the movie like he knew exactly the size of those embryos that he was going to put in the can and he gave him a can that would perfectly fit them that's it it's you know that's that's it doesn't break my suspension of disbelief of the movie it, it's it's not that big of a deal it's just something i didn't ever think about until just now that how convenient it is that it was just the right size for those embryos but, yeah, in the book, I think it's just a, a hollowed-out can that he just shoves them in there and closes it up and cranks the, the liquid nitrogen, and on, on he goes. Yeah. So, he gets into Muldoon's Jeep. <laughs> he looks and he's like, huh, there's something on the passenger seat that kind of looks like a rocket launcher. Anyways, and just off <laughs> he goes. Uh, but at this point, it's it's become storming. And it's, it's a tropical storm. Uh, the, the power's out, so everybody on the tour... Uh, their their jeeps have stopped moving because they're electric jeeps that are tied to the cables underground electric cables and that's what kind of guides them in the automated tour they're now send, essentially stuck out in the rain and the gates are turned off that's a problem but they're just kind of chilling for now and in the in the, the jeeps not wanting to get out because it's a really heavy tropical storm and so nedry's whole three minutes there three minutes back ain't gonna quite go to plan because he can't see shit because of the storm and if you've seen the movie, you know where this is going. Uh, he ends up almost slamming into a, a concrete barrier, and he realizes he's kind of he's lost his way somewhere. So he goes out to go look and see where he's at, and he realizes he's by the river, which doesn't help him much at all because the river runs across the entire island. So he starts to head back to his car, and he starts hearing hooting, which at first he thinks is an owl, then he realizes it's not an owl. And when he makes it back to his car, he realizes that he doesn't he doesn't know what it is, but we know what it is. Uh, there's a Dilophosaur in front of the car. And it's not... I, I don't know how accurate the book is, but I'm going to assume the book is more accurate than the movie. Uh, in the movie, the Dilophosauruses are essentially like... They're, they're about cat size, small animal. Uh, so it's... um. It's pretty small, and you know it has the whole like, it, the the like, I don't know what I, my my mind's drawing a blank with what you call them, but the little skin flaps that come out the side of its head, and it goes like the hissing thing, and it shoots the the, the venom out. It that's how they are in the movie. In the book, they're very similar with like the flaps and the spinning, the venom, but the difference being is in the book they're ten feet tall, which is just insane to me to think about, like geez man those things were kind of terrifying in the movie being like you know small domesticated animal size 10 feet tall standing on its hind legs with these giant flaps and hooting at you that's fucking terrifying so nedry is freaked as 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 you would be 
but trying to get to uh, his car as fast as possible. And it spits the uh, its acid on him. First, it hits him in the chest, and he touches it, and he's like, "What? It, it spit on me!" And then it, it spits on him again. It hits him in the neck, and he's starting to tingle where he's touched it, where it touched him on his neck, and where it touched on his hands. And he's like, "Oh God, this is like acid!" And he gets to the door of the car, and he turns to look at it to make sure he knows where it's at before he gets in the car. And at that point, it shoots him right in the eyes and it blinds him completely because it's now burning his eyes at this point and boy in the movie nedry's death scene is it's i don't want to say off screen because you're staring at the car as it's shaking and he's screaming but it's for all intents and purposes it's kind of off screen because you all you get is the implied things that are going on it's so much more brutal in the book so he's sitting there he's burning his he can't see uh, he's, he's, he's been blinded completely, and he can hear it coming up to him. He can feel its presence getting closer and closer. And once again, this is a 10-foot-tall creature, and it slashes his um, it slashes his guts open, and he's like holding, he realizes he's holding his intestines as they're spilling out. He falls over, and it, he, he feels it grab his head with its mouth and lift him off the ground, and... The last thing it says is him him realizing what's going on and wishing that it's going to end soon. And that's where the chapter ends. And it's like, oh my god, what? Like, oh, Jesus, that's so much more brutal. Like, oh, man. So that's that's the end of Dennis Nedry. You know, I feel like, I feel like Nedry uh, wouldn't have met the fate he met if... Uh, he would have actually gotten that Coca-Cola that he said he was going to go get because everybody knows that Coca-Cola saves lives. Nothing bad has ever happened to a person who drinks Coca-Cola. No, it's it's basically a rule of the universe. It's, uh, yeah. That's, that's why they use it to clean blood off the highway. <laughs> yeah. Not, not because it's, it's like acidic. A, it, it's like a magical eraser. It's like it never happened. No, it just you you pretty much covered it. It's just um pretty brutal and it's uh it's a tough read. <laughs> it's to a certain extent cuz you're just like imagining it happening to you and you're like, "Oh man, that would really suck." Yeah. But anyway, yeah, he goes out in a very uh agonizing and quite frankly pathetic way. So, uh yeah. RIP Nedry. As as smoking that Nedry pack. As as much as a, of a just a general kind of piece of shit he is, uh that fate did not quite fit for who he was. No, it basically fits no one, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, that's pretty a pretty bad way to go. That, that, that's kind of the thing with this entire with this entire franchise, be it the books or the movies, is everyone's death is kind of something they didn't really deserve. Unless the person dying is extremely, extremely evil, and there is somebody who fits this that I will talk about in the final episode we cover for this, because it's at the end of the book. Um, there is somebody who fits that, and I think they got their just desserts. No pun intended. Um, so yeah, Nedry Nedry got a got a real bad lay of it. Yeah. But anyways, back to uh, back to the tour group. Uh, Tim's wearing night vision goggles, so the the group is once again split up. It's it's Malcolm and Grant in the back car, and Regis, uh, Tim, and Lex in the front car. And Tim's got these night vision goggles that were in the car that Regis used to essentially convince him to sit up there uh, instead of trying to bother Malcolm and uh, and Grant. And he's looking around for the T-Rex 
just like, hmm, I wonder if I'll be able to see. Because at this point, they're once again back by the T-Rex enclosure. And uh, he's trying to find it. He's like, I wonder if its, light, if its eyes will glow in the night vision goggles. And he sees it. And it is just up against the fence, just staring at them. And like, wow, man, just imagine, imagine that. You're just looking around, like, oh, I wonder if I'll see the T-Rex. And then you just, you see what you think is like, maybe it. And your eyes just go up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And there it is, and you see its eyes, and it's just looking right at the cars, and you're just like, oh, uh, is it, uh, uh, is it, is it, is it holding the fence? It's holding the fence, and it's not shocking it. Oh my god, it's not shocking it. Like, man. <laughs> yeah, that would be incredibly terrifying. Yeah. So, uh, the, meanwhile, he's he's kind of like relaying this information. Oh, actually, shoot. Um, I'm sorry. There's something I actually completely forgot about, and we we, we both forgot about. Back up a little bit, just a little smidge, smidge bit. Um, so the boat that you mentioned earlier that was docking and and um, taking things off. This was, I think, before Nedry shut the system down, and uh, the storms. Yeah, it was because this is when the storm was coming. They're like, hey, the storm's getting bad. We need to go, otherwise. Um, you know, bat, the ship's going to crash. You know, it's going to be a lot of a mess. And it's horrible. Uh, we can't get everything off in time. We're just going to have to come back in two weeks. And, of course, Hammond stamps his feet. And he's like, no, I need that equipment for the lab now. I need it now. And Arnold is the one that's just like, hey, if you make them stay, not only are you going to lose the equipment to the storm, you're going to lose the boat. And you're going to have to pay to salvage the boat and salvage the equipment and repair the dock, and we're not going to be able to get any shipments in that time period that it's under repairs. It's not worth it. And so Hammond reluctantly is just like, fine, let him go. So Arnold gives them the okay, and the ship leaves before they can dock so they cannot worry about the storm. Meanwhile, um, as they're making their way back to the to the resort, um, the, the tour group, uh, the kids are, like, waving and, like, freaking out in the front car, and Grant's like, oh, man, something's going on. So he gets on the, the radio, and he's like, hey, what's going on? And they're like, oh, look, 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 look on the boat, look on the boat. And he pulls out his binoculars, and he's looking, and Lex is like, look, look, look to the side, look to the side. And it's it's hard to see, but he eventually makes out two baby velociraptors on the boat as it's leaving in the distance, just playing around. They're just having a little having a little games, just playing around on the, on the boat. So, uh-oh. There's two guaranteed Velociraptors that are on their way off the island, and Grant and Malcolm are like, "Oh God, we need to, we need to radio back to the to the control system, let them know, so they can let the boat crew know, because this is bad. We can't let them, we can't let them get off the island." Which something to note as well that I don't think we talked about is one of the things that um, Wu put in place, uh, and one of the reasons why he's like, "There's no way." Uh, dinosaurs could get off the island, and even if they could, we I have a contingency plan for that, but they won't. But I have a contingency plan, but they won't. Is that um, he created them to only be able to survive in the atmosphere of Isla Nublar if they left the island. Um, th- this this goes back to the whole like lysine dependence that they have. Uh, they wouldn't get what they need, and they would essentially go into a coma after twelve hours and die. So they are not able to survive outside of the island genetically however we already know that compies have been thriving in costa rica that got off the island so that may work for the the uh dinosaurs that Wu, that Wu created but that's probably not true 
for the dinosaurs that were naturally born on the island and uh-oh so there's 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 a possibility that those raptors on the boat aren't going to have that lysine deficiency that's going to kill them in 12 to 18 hours so uh yeah it's it's definitely you can start to feel like a growing sense of doom as the plot carries along and that's one of the one of those moments where you're like oh crap yeah. i don't know less of when i when we first read this or i guess listened to the audio book years ago i i remember thinking like oh wow this is bad but just there's just something about it reading it this time that is just really sinking in it's like how incredibly screwed they are and by proxy how what bad how bad this is for the entire world you know when you really sit and think about it yep and it's it's one of those things to where it's like you know the best laid plans you know you can sit there and plan on this and think that you have everything down to a science and that you have every contingency covered there's no loopholes and if there are loopholes you'll you have more than enough time to fix them and and there's no way that anything can go wrong and you've done this perfectly but as malcolm says life finds a way yeah that was a great moment in the book too so yeah that's um that's something I, I needed to actually cover and not forget to cover um before going into the t-rex incident so yeah the 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 wire the the security system's off the fences are down and the t-rex has realized this um also something important to note is before he actually saw the t-rex uh tim heard something looked and caught a glimpse of something running in between the cars but he couldn't tell what it was grant asked him if he saw what it was because grant heard it and felt it too but he can't see because he doesn't have night vision goggles but unfortunately tim didn't get a good enough look at it um i'm pretty confident i know what it is off of just one intuition and two what i do remember i'm pretty sure i know what it is uh i'll not say anything for now but i'm pretty sure i know what it is and um so then he sees the t-rex and the t-rex realizes the fences are not working and decides i don't need no fences anymore and kicks that shit down so boom the t-rex is now officially broken containment and it's staring at the tr the cars and yeah that that's just such an incredibly cool moment yeah just, just the, the the visual of the t-rex just holding onto the cage and then it kind of like slowly realizes that it can break free it just that's just so cool yeah it's another one of those things kind of like with the introduction of the dinosaurs uh, in the book compared to the movie where like the 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 t-rex scene in the book compared to the movie it's different and they both do what they're trying to do perfectly in the book it's all about like just this slowly building tension and then once the t-rex is out it's this big just explosion of terror and and just it's 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 absolutely thrilling and it's it's so great and in the movie it's kind of similar you don't get as much of that tension building you do get some of it with the the iconic the the stomping and the cup of water rumbling and rippling as the stomps happen like that that is just as good in my opinion for the movie as tim staring at the dinosaur with the night vision goggles is for the book so it's 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 a little it's different well, it's it's just one of those things that it's just you know when with with the with the the, the 
movie being kind of a, a, a more visually oriented medium, it, it kind of helps. It gives it a more visual. Uh, it's it's an easier way to visually convey that uh, versus what they would have to spend like millions on on just doing the CGI for that for that one shot, you know. And and even then, it, with the the thing we have with the book is we're we're at this point we're in Tim's perspective because this this book shifts perspectives. It could do it from paragraph to paragraph, and we're we're all we're witnessing this through Tim's eyes. So we're see, we're we're seeing what he's thinking, what he's feeling as he's staring at this T Rex, and there's a lot of awe in it and also a little bit of fear because of it like looking at them and him realizing the fences are off and it all kind of crescendos with his fear and um later on when the perspective shifts grant's fear um as the t-rex is causing its little rampage but we can't really get that same thing that, that doesn't translate as well to movies so the scene with the the glass of water and it rippling with the stomps that does just as well in the movie to convey that tension and that fear and that just building suspense as it does it in a way that works for the movie that you can't do like you can in a book with being inside the character's head and feeling that fear with them as you are experiencing it. Yeah, absolutely. So just another, another mark of just the book does it phenomenally. The movie does it a little different, but just as phenomenally. But as a whole, the 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 T Rex incident is a lot. It's a lot more bombastic and shorter in the movie. It basically comes in to have its spectacle, get its point across, and move on to the next scene. That's just how movies go. You have to, you know, pacing is a thing, runtime is a thing. Books don't really have to deal with that as much. So we're able to get a lot more of what's kind of happening, a lot more um, freneticism, and a lot more just general action in the book. Which fit once again fits the book and how the movie did it fit the movie, you know. It's just, the movie's fantastic. I can't say enough good things about the movie, and that that's one of the most iconic and rightfully so, like one of the best scenes in the movie. Everybody knows the T Rex scene it, when it stops out and it just roars, and you get that iconic T Rex roar. Like you know, the the movie does it so well. But we're not talking about the. I should stop talking about the movie. Um, so yeah, it, it, it breaks the fence, and it immediately goes for for their car. And, uh, oh, God. Uh, Regis at this point has pissed himself, gets out, and sprints into the forest. <laughs> so, and, 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 uh, Lex is just freaking out and crying. He laughed us, he laughed us, he laughed us, he laughed us over and over. And Tim's trying to get her to quiet and shut the door that he left open. So he has to run out and shut the door and then come back and run in. And now, like, the T Rex is coming. And, uh, it just starts just fucking beating that car up. It rips the, the uh the tire the spare tire off the back it busts the windows it's like stomping on it it's it like comes down it, you they look over and he sees its eye staring into the window of the car through the windshield and it's like knocking them around he gets his goggles knocked off lex has been knocked unconscious and she's bleeding on the side of her head he's like he's a little banged up too he's trying to talk to grant on the radio because grant's trying to like you know what's going on what's going on you guys okay and he's just he's trying to keep in contact with Grant, and then it comes and it like it bites the windshield, it's like it's staring at him, and it bites the like the, the the front frame of the car as it's trying to get at him, and he like he feels its its hot breath, and like the saliva falls onto him, and it's trying to get him, but it can't because the car's in the way, and it also cut its mouth a little bit on the metal frame, and he's like, oh wow, it can't get to me, and it's it's so great at just framing this scene, and 
just having all of this happen just building on it and it it's such a well-written scene it conveys the action perfectly and like tim is just helpless sitting in this car while the t-rex is just trying to get at them and what ends up happening is it picks up the car with its mouth and the door falls open and lex falls out of the car into the mud but tim is still in the car and it's just rocking the car around and it just throws the car out and the last thing tim realizes is he's hurtling through the air in the car before he loses consciousness it's like man what a what a cool scene yeah yeah this is this is i would say it's probably one of the high points of the book i mean there's the the, it's the whole thing is very good but this is much like the movie this is uh and i know we shouldn't necessarily do that all the time but it's just it's this is uh definitely one of like the most memorable sequences of the book yeah for me i if i had to pick three scenes that i felt were the most memorable in the book it's the t-rex attack the aviary and the climax in the resort with the with the raptors those are my three i'm obviously not going to go into details of the other two yet because we're not there yet uh my favorite is the raptors in the resort at the at the climax of the novel it's my favorite part of the book it's incredible i love it uh but those three scenes i would say are my personal uh best my biggest highlights of the book honorable mention goes to the lakeside uh, going to the boathouse yeah i think that's fair but anyways um the the storm has been going so hard and grant and malcolm in the in the back car have no idea what's happening and there's a flash of lightning and grant's like is the car gone and he at first he thinks no it's just the t-rex that's standing in between them and the the two cars and it's there's no way the car is actually gone and then there's another flash of lightning and he's like oh no the car's gone and they hear lex screaming and they see the t-rex go down and it looks like it's feeding on something and malcolm's like oh god was that the girl and uh, they're just like they're they're freaking out thinking that it might be lex and he's like i think it was and so then the t-rex comes and looks at them and now it's like oh, i got this one car taken care of now let's look at the other and malcolm's like uh it's it's times like this where you you start to feel like uh things that are exist should stay exist sorry. it's times like these where you think that something that's that's extinct should stay extinct huh and grant's like yes yes absolutely <laughs> and then what does malcolm do gets out and runs and uh it turns out uh like which it's a lot more forgivable in in his instance than than reaches because at this point they they have good reason to believe that the kids are dead yeah and you know it turns out that uh trying to outrun a like 20 30 foot creature is uh not really something you can do so the rex uh ends up really quickly closing the gap between him and Malcolm and just hits him with its head and he just goes flying. And that's the last we see of Malcolm for now, as of as of our reading for today. That's the last we see of Malcolm for now. It's not the last of Malcolm yet. Um, so, but as it stands, he is now officially out of the scene. Grant, at this point, has also gotten out of the car, but he's frozen in fear as the T-Rex looks back in his direction and starts coming back to the car grant can't move he's thinking this is it i'm about to get eaten by a t-rex and he's completely frozen with fear but the strangest thing happens the t-rex is looking for him but it can't find him 
and it starts like hitting the car around it's like just barely missing him and uh he realizes that their eyesight is based more on finding movement than it is on actual like vision and this is something that it's it's one of those plot holes that people pick out of the movie how does grant know not to move uh in the movie and the t-rex won't see you if you don't move because when he grabs lex and he's like don't move i won't see you and it comes all the way right up to him and it snorts and it blows his hat off and it's a really great scene it's super tense but it is one of those things where where a lot of people are like it's a plot hole how does grant not know or how, how does grant know that if you don't move the t-rex won't see you and that's the answer you get in the book is that's how grant knew in the book at least is because he was so frozen with fear that he stumbled into knowing that if you don't move it won't be able to tell where you're at because they're, a lot of their hunting is based on movement. And he realizes that the T-Rex knows that he's somewhere and it's trying to get him to move so it can find him. So it like roars in his direction. It's stomping about. It's hitting the car. Uh, but he's just he realizes this. So now he's doing everything in his power not to move so that the T-Rex can't find him. And so in a bout of frustration, the T-Rex just smacks the shit out of the car and takes grant with it so grant goes flying and hits the ground and gets knocked unconscious and that's all for grant for for today that's all for malcolm that's all for tim and lex that's all for regis we're almost done i was about to say that's so, all for us but uh, yeah you're right there is one last sequence uh with hammond uh and also ellie and, and harding oh okay never well i guess them too yeah so um you might be wondering, well, what's Ellie Sadler and Dr. Harding and, and Gennaro, Gennaro been doing at, uh, at this point in time? And uh, so they're, they're, they eventually finish up their business, and they're heading back to the resort as well. They, they imagine every, but they don't know anything's wrong other than, you know, the, uh, this storm's probably causing some problems, so it's not that big of a deal. Uh, there's a fallen tree that's blocking the road, so they can't get back the way that they came. And Harding's like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. There's also the maintenance road we can take. It takes longer, but we'll get back to it anyways. It'll take about 40 minutes, but it's whatever. So they start heading down that way, and uh, they have to stop at one point to let some dinosaurs pass. They don't seem to notice them because something that Harding points out is, yeah, they tend to only really notice things that are in movement. So we kind of we get another kind of reaffirmation of, of that idea that Grant just found out. And so they keep going after the dinosaurs pass, and then they have to stop again, and they see a bunch of compies on the road. And Harding's like, that's kind of odd that they're out, because they're normally, normally when it's storming, they'll just, like, hide up in the trees until the weather passes. Or maybe it's, or maybe, was it because it's storming or because it's nighttime? I think it's because it's nighttime, actually. Yeah, it was, they, they go to the tree at night. Yeah, so then they, he's like, oh, they normally, they normally go in the trees at night. And she's like, well, they're normally, they're scavengers. They, 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 they tend they probably only do this if they're hunting something that's dying or dead. And Harding's like, yeah, I agree. She's like, let's, let's, let's follow the compies and see where they're going. He's like, sure, let's do it. So they, they go and they're following the compies and that's where we're going to leave them for now. Gennaro, I guess is just kind of there. He doesn't have a word to say in this entire, he might as well not be there right now because it, it doesn't even mention him. And then the last thing we're going to cover today is another meeting between John Hammond and uh, Dr. Wu. Uh, they're chilling in his bungalow They've just eaten dinner, and uh, Hammond is doing his kind of power play thing again to where it doesn't matter what Wu's saying, he's going to override him because he's a petulant little child, and he's, he's, he's acting like he's, you know, 
nicer than he is and using ice cream as like some sort of like mediator for it. Oh, you gotta try the ginger ice cream. It's to die for. So this is just another occurrence of, of just seeing just how much of a scummy business band that John Hammond is. He's talking about how the one of the reasons why he's doing this, the way that he's doing it with an island 100 miles off the coast of Costa Rica, is because of essentially avoiding bureaucracy. It's like, oh, if you have to do all of these things for, like, uh, genetics or research or whatever, there's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy, uh, a lot, a lot of things that just kind of really hold it up, and uh, you you see all this all the time. Where if uh, if someone creates uh, a medicine and they decide they want to sell it for fifteen hundred dollars or whatever, they want to try and set the price, and the government, the big bad government's like, oh no 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 no, uh, I don't want you to set this price this much, so I'm going to make it harder for you to get your patents. And it kind of, it mucks up the whole system for them. And so now you don't really have the freedom to control your product that you created the way that you want it to. You have to go through these Which, regulators. I just need to throw out here that he talks about uh, recouping R&D expenses, but that is, that underplays how a lot, a lot, a lot of current, of, of uh, uh, pioneering medicines that are being uh, done, or looked into right now are, are uh, there's they're getting massive grants from the government as part of their research uh so so his his whole bit about like oh but they're not letting us recoup our r&d costs just is yet another uh, part of his thing that it's just it's just it's very it's a very self-serving and and not necessarily very uh grounded in reality argument here yeah and so his whole thing is because i'm doing this for entertainment i'm in i'm not in the medical industry I am in the entertainment industry, and with entertainment, those conniving government regulators can't do shit about it. this. I can set the price that I want, and you know what? That's actually going to make it more alluring. If I make this $5,000 a day, that's going to encourage people to come. It's not going to dissuade them, and you know how those, how those rich Americans and those rich Japanese people are. And something I, I thought about, too, while, while he was talking about this, I think this book takes place in 89. So I'm assuming yeah. that's when the st when the the Japanese uh, giant economic bubble was still going on. I I think the, I think the the economic downturn started in like the early night like maybe 1990. Yeah. Maybe like 1991 somewhere in there. Because he makes a comment saying that the Japanese have a lot more money than the Americans, and I just you know like everything always goes back to Yakuza. My brain just immediately flashed back to Yakuza Zero, which is which takes place in 88 during that giant economic bubble and you know Kiryu, one of the characters you play as, at, you you do a real estate business and you're making billions upon billions of yen just doing that. And I'm just thinking about that just like, yeah, 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 that Japanese uh, economic bubble was was pretty nuts in the 80s, wasn't it? So yeah, it makes sense that the Japanese Kiryu. have more money. Here you rocking up to uh, to Jurassic Park with a briefcase full of cash. Yeah, I'll make an offer in cash. Even and just just yeah, even the homeless the island. Yeah, even the homeless people are able to afford to go to Jurassic Park in Japan. <laughs> that that's uh that's actually how Kiryu lost his money in between um in between uh, Zero and Kiwami. He he spent he spent it all like 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 a pre pre-sale of tickets he was going to turn around and flip but uh the i after the island went after uh engine went bankrupt he wasn't able to do anything with that yeah it, it turns out um that uh the the major shareholder in engine was kazuma kiryu and uh when they went under so did he 
But anyways, it's just it's more showing just that how Hammond really only cares about the money. Like he may like dinosaurs, but I think he cares more about what these dinosaurs will do for him than he does about the dinosaurs themselves, about the science of it, about the marvel of it. And earlier he did talk about how he's like, I may actually be in this chapter how he's like, oh, you know, I the, my one regret is that I probably won't live live long enough to see the faces of these kids smile in delight as they see the dinosaurs. I'm calling bullshit, dude. You don't care about the smiling faces of children. You care about the wallets of their parents that are paying for these tickets. Like that's what he cares about. He's he's his regret is that he won't live to see the true as he projected it twenty billion dollar a year profits that he feels like is a conservative estimate on what Jurassic Park is going to bring in. He he's not going to be able to get the long term benefits of this park, the financial benefits. He might see some of it, but he'll probably die within the next decade or so. Maybe less if his health declines or he gets a disease or something. That's what he. That's what he cares about. Is this? It's. It's all about the money. He doesn't care about the kids. He. If he would have cared about the kids, he wouldn't have made that comment. Of, Only the rich kids will be able to come here. So no. If he cared about the kids and their wonder of dinosaurs, he'd make it affordable for like even middle class families. So fuck John Hammond. He doesn't care about that. What an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. And and in addition to that, also he talk when he talks about. Um... He, well, never mind. I, we, we don't necessarily have to run down every instance of hypocrisy by John Hammond. But basically, if he ever says anything, it is either false, um, hypocritical, and but in every case, self-serving. Yeah. So that's that's kind of like where where kind of we leave off with Hammond. Hammond is having his little meeting with Wu, and he's basically just like, "Oh, it's all about the money, and we're doing this to uh, to go around the government." Uh, meanwhile, nobody can find Nedry in the control center, so they're just trying to, like, deal with that can of worms. Somebody mentions that they saw him heading towards the garage, and Muldoon, who had earlier went to try and go to his jeep to go rescue the people on the tour, realizes the jeep is gone. He now realizes that it was Nedry that probably took the jeep, so he's like, oh, no. So now they're all freaking out because they... they because Arnold understands that it's going to take hours for him to figure out how to undo the tangle of spaghetti code that, that Nedry made here. That Nedry could have fixed in minutes, but he's dead now, so, oops. Not that they know that yet, but... Yeah, that's that's kind of where we left leave off. It's uh, we, we got the build-up of the dinosaurs, and now everything has just started to collapse. We've had a couple... We've, well, I think it's just a casualty so far. We've had our first casualty with them as Nedry... And uh, the uh, the fence is broken. There's raptors about that uh, are unaccounted for. The T-Rex is loose. And uh, the fates of Tim and Lex are up in the air, as well as Malcolm and, and, and Grant. So, uh-oh, where do we go from here? I think I think that, that about gets us. Um, and actually quite a nice place to leave off. Um, a lot of, with a lot of those, those uh, subplots kind of in the air. Yeah. I, I I did it this time. This was me. <laughs> yes, yes. Dusty is the it, she des- deserves all the credit for the for the the big uh, the big the big cliffhanger here. Aha. Yeah, I think that'll that'll about do us for uh, Jurassic Park this week. Um, you know, as I've said many times already, I love this book. It's so good. Everybody should read this book. It's fantastic. Uh, great, great little um, science fiction novel. It's not little. It's pretty big. No, it, 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 yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty big, but, on, but I, I very much concur. Um, I think anybody that, that likes the book or, or that like the movie, 
should try the book and I I don't know I think in terms of just raw enjoyment it's my favorite so far yeah it's it is very much a ride uh, if, if you if you enjoy the movie if you think the movie has these nice like thrills and chills and suspenseful moments the book has them in spades as well uh, so yeah uh, yeah, they'll, they'll do it for us this week. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, yeah, my name's Dusty. And I'm Daniel. And they'll do it for us today for the Sad Boys Book Club. So we'll see you guys next week. All right, see you then.